Welcome to Igniting Your Faith. How complicated is the love of Jesus Christ? Are you saved by obeying the law, or are you saved by grace through faith? We encourage you to thoughtfully and prayerfully let God's love make an impact in your life. Now here is Dr. Chris Fisher with today's message of powerful truth from God's Word. Before we get into the Word today, I just want to praise God for our Wednesday night outreach down in Bubeck Park. Uh, April, what's that called again? Summer Jam. It was a really blessed success. Um, so neat to see. Um, the folks ran it like a game show, and the kids in the neighborhood who were out there uh, loved it and participated. Lots of uh, water balloons being thrown at each other and um, other fun stuff, and they saw the love of Jesus. I just want to praise God for that opportunity um, and to see our folks uh, out in the community sharing the love of Christ. Wonderful and exciting to be part of and to see happening. Um, at least one person came to me and said they wanted to get their baby baptized um, and sort of get back into their Christian faith. And so I want to just thank God for that. And we'll see where that ministry goes. Uh, this summer, we're doing it at the beginning of each month. So the next one is the beginning of August on Wednesday, August 3rd, I think. And so if you want to come out and help or just see what's going on, uh, I believe you'll be blessed too. Uh, all right, I want to praise God for that. Let's bow in prayer before we get into the Word today. Lord Jesus, we just thank You that You've come to shine Your light, Your eternal light on us. That You have come to set us free from sin, Lord. And from the law, that we might walk in grace and in the power of Your Spirit. Not our own flesh to try to be good, but in the power of Your own presence living in us. That gift You give us by faith. We ask You now to well up in our hearts and minds and help us to hear Your Word and receive it today. We pray for Your protection upon us. We ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to You. You're our rock. You're our Redeemer, Lord. We come and hide in the shadow of that rock right now. Be gracious to us, Lord. Thank You, Lord. Amen. Well, I want to give you some setting. We're working through the book of Acts here uh, during these, this preaching series, and we've come to Acts chapter 15. And it's really about what must the Gentiles give up from their pagan culture in order to be saved. That's the, the theme. question rapidly became important in the early church as the Gentiles accepted the gospel. Did they need to become cultural and ceremonial Jews, keeping the whole law? Or should they keep part of the law? Or none of it? Well, what was the expectation? Controversy took hold as certain believers from the Pharisees came to Antioch and told the Gentile believers they had to get circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Just a little FYI, this is going to be a PG sermon. Maybe a little PG-13. Um, I'm not going to get graphic, but we're going to talk about things like circumcision. Men, you can cross your legs. <laughs> I 
So some folks are saying you got to get circumcised. Mark a Jewish covenant, first covenant. Abraham, you have to be circumcised, and your sons, all the people of your tribe have to be circumcised. It's a sign they belong to me. The law of Moses, it's in there too. Was that going to be required if you were a Gentile? You'd never been circumcised, and you started to follow Jesus. Did you have to get circumcised too? This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp disagreement and debate with these believers who came down from the party of the Pharisees. They resolved the question. You notice they, they, have, they were arguing in the church about this. What do we do with this? And they weren't coming to a conclusion, so they sent a delegation to Jerusalem that included Paul and Barnabas and some others to see what the apostles and elders of the church had to say about the question. Now that's the background here for this letter that the apostles write. Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem and they present an account of their missionary work to the apostles and the elders. Uh, those elders included the 12 apostles the, among the, along with the Lord's brother James and possibly Jude and some other key mature believers, including Judas and Silas, not Judas Iscariot. He's already off the scene. Again, a group of believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the whole law of Moses. Verse 5, Acts 15. And then the apostles met to consider the question. And after much discussion, so they had a long discussion among themselves, Peter, the first apostle to share the gospel with the Gentiles, reminds the gathering that God had purified the Gentiles by faith, giving them the same Holy Spirit given to the Jewish believers when he went to preach to Cornelius. And so he says to them, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved just as they are. In other words, Peter is talking about the law there and saying this is a burden we Jews have never been able to bear ourselves. We can't keep the whole law, and we know it. So why are we going to put it on them? We're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by trusting in Jesus. He gave them the Holy Spirit just because they believed in Jesus, not because they were perfect in keeping the law. So why are we going to put that on them? That was part of the discussion. Then James gets up. Barnabas and Saul, uh, Paul, shared the signs and wonders God has done among the Gentiles, showing clearly that many were turning to faith in Jesus and God was giving them the same Holy Spirit, just the way Cornelius, it happened with Cornelius when Peter preached. And then James, the Lord's brother, responds. And his words are worth quoting again. It's verses 13 and following. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon's described to us how God first intervened to choose a people. He's talking about Peter, Simon Peter. To choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it's written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. David being the king of Israel and Jesus, the one to rebuild it as the final king of Israel. Its ruins I'll rebuild and I'll restore it, that the rest of mankind 
may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. So he's quoting Old Testament prophets there, saying this is what they said was going to happen. The gospel is going to go out to the whole world, including the Gentiles who bear God's name. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain. And, and he names four things here. Food polluted, polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Those four things. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it's read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, if you read on there, you discover that James' word prevails. The whole council of apostles and elders agrees to the simple standards, these simple standards for Gentile behavior in the church. They compose a letter and send it with Paul and Barnabas and some of their own respected leaders, including Judas Barsabbas, that's his surname, and Silas to confirm the word. And these four men take the letter back to Antioch. The letter, and I'll read a part of it in a minute. It's really quite short, actually. I'll read the whole thing. How's that? The letter is the first authoritative apostolic direction to the church. And it becomes the rule for Gentile expectations and behavior in the church. In other words, how are Christians supposed to behave? Not just because you're Jewish, not just because you've got Jewish cultural expectations, but whatever culture you're in, whatever Gentile part of the church you end up being in, whatever your cultural habits and customs may be, what are the expectations for Christians to live in that culture, regardless of its standards? If we were uh, in the Roman Catholic tradition, we would call this the first encyclical. Anybody have a... Catholic background, you know what an encyclical is? It's an authoritative letter from the Pope to the whole church that addresses matters of faith or morals, encourages a particular commemoration or pious devotion, or deals with matters of church discipline, which are universally to be universally observed. So what we got here in this apostolic decree is the first encyclical of the first leaders of the church on what the Christians of the whole world are to do, how they're to behave. What are the boundaries? And Paul especially interprets the letter and carries forward the Lord's teaching in these areas for the Gentile churches outside Judea in his own further missionary work and letters. And so if you read Paul's letters, you see these issues unpacked in a great deal of detail so that folks will know how to live by the way of the Lord. He writes extensively about how Christians should treat the law of Moses, as well as how Christians should flee from the sins of idolatry and sexual immorality in many of his letters, including Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, and 1 Thessalonians. And here's the full text of the letter. The apostles and elders decided to choose some of their own men to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and they sent the following letter to them. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We've heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. 
So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're to abstain. And listen, this is like word for word repeating what James said. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. Farewell. That's it. Short, sweet, to the point. And so they take this off to the church in Antioch. Folks have their argument resolved. They say, okay, now it's clear. And then Paul and Barnabas go off and begin to teach this. Actually, there's a little disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. They separate soon after this. But Paul begins to uh, go on his second missionary journey and spread this clarification in the church. I want you to think about some important points from this apostolic decree that are important for us today. Peter's recognition that the Old Testament law was too burdensome even for the Jews. And James' recognition that there are key points of the law that should still be obeyed. James' judgment is included almost verbatim in the apostolic decree. And from the description of the council's deliberations, you can see that Peter is not the sole leader of the church. It's the whole council, the apostles together, and James, the Lord's brother, and clearly an elder who had the voice together to lead the early church. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. You know, this undermines the notion Peter was the first bishop of the church and undermines the notion the bishops of Rome have a special place as super bishops because they followed in his footsteps as uh, leaders in Rome. There's no biblical warrant for that. And you see when the apostles are together in the first council, he's not the super leader. He's one of the 12 and he has an important voice, but it's not the final voice. Also, the content of the apostles' letter dealt with key questions for Christians that are still relevant today. How are we to behave? How much of the law is binding on us and what are we freed from? The apostles named those four things that deserved universal obedience. And two of them seem a little weird to us, the blood and the strangled animals. We'll look at that in a minute. Two of them, uh, one in a culture that doesn't believe in any supernatural realm. You talk about idols and they say, oh, no, those gods aren't real even though the folks in that type of environment worship all kinds of things that are less than God. And the question is sexual immorality. Of course, in our culture, where materialism has taught us since the sexual revolution in the 50s and 60s that there is no spiritual realm, you can do with your body whatever you want, and it doesn't matter, that sexual relations are like eating bread, and, and so what? That that one comes across as weird and oppressive in our culture. The idea that we should abstain from intimate relations outside of marriage because they're against the will of God. So we need to look at these things. You know, there are potentially other items from the law they could have named. But as James observed, and here, here's what he said, Moses has been preached, this is verse 21, for the law of Moses, James says this, 
has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it's read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. In other words, there's a background of knowing what the law said. Most people would be already familiar with the moral basics. The, the, the letter doesn't say you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't bear false witness, don't murder, honor your father and mother. It doesn't name those things. It assumes people are going to know them because they've heard Moses read. So it focuses in on things that were controversial that could be a source of confusion. What about the meat sacrificed to idols? What about blood? What, what's the deal with blood? And that's why they get priority in this letter. So let's look at them. Eating food sacrificed to idols. Why is that a problem? Remember, the Gentiles were just coming out of all kinds of pagan superstition and the worship of idols. That worship included sacrificing animals, which meant that which meat was often sold in the meat market afterwards. And eating the food sacrificed to an idol was too easily confused with worshiping the idol themselves. You know, Paul gives a nuanced understanding of this in 1 Corinthians 13. He points out that idols are nothing. They're not real. Those gods are pretend. They're fictitious. If a believer knows that and has strong faith and gives thanks to God for the meat, wherever it came from, then why should they be condemned for that? If you study 1 Corinthians, you find that argument in there. But then he continues, a Christian should eat in such a way as not to make someone else stumble. So someone who doesn't know idols are nothing might see a Christian eating meat sacrificed to an idol and think the Christian was worshiping the idol and think, oh, okay, if they do it, I can do it too. And so their conscience is defiled. They're destroyed because a Christian went overboard in exercising their freedom. And so in that case, it would be better not to eat the meat than to make the other person stumble watching you eat the meat. So whatever you do, do it for the priority of how can is this loving my neighbor the best? Paul also warns for those who might be tempted to go into idol temples and participate in worship because they're nothing, that the inspiration behind the idols of the nations is demons. And he warns believers they cannot participate in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. They can't worship both an idol and God, for God is a jealous God and does not share his glory with imposters. And so idolatry and eating food sacrificed to idols is a serious sin. The Lord Jesus himself rebukes, if you study his words to the seven churches of Revelation. You see him doing that there. And by the way, you see this tension between what part of the law we should be bound by and what part we're freed from, even in Jesus' ministry. Maybe you heard that today. The Pharisees come and saying, why are you letting your disciples eat heads of grain that they pick while they're walking through the fields on, on the Sabbath? And Jesus is like, oh my gosh. That is such a minutia. You made that up. That's not what the Sabbath is all about. And he uses that parable of how David, when he was hungry, fleeing from Saul, went into the, to the precinct of, of the, the, the holy place and he got consecrated bread for his men because they were in trouble. And Jesus said that the priority of the law is mercy, not sacrifice. You guys with your legalism have missed the boat. 
He rebukes the Pharisees a number of times because of that focus on man-made interpretations of the minutia of the law and missing the bigger picture of mercy, justice, and righteousness. So this question now about what part of the law with regard to worshiping idols, meat, blood. Let's talk about blood for a minute. Since the days of Noah, the human race has been forbidden to drink blood because the life is in the blood. That's in Genesis 9.4. And the blood has been given to make atonement for sin. Leviticus 3.17, Deuteronomy chapter 12. So the prohibition against drinking blood is in the law. And here in the Apostles' Decree, we see the prohibition continues under the new covenant. We are to respect the life of a creature by not drinking its blood. No doubt in part, at least in part, because the blood of our Lord is sacred and made atonement for the whole human race. And so out of respect for the life that God has put in each creature, we pour out its blood on the ground before we eat it. And if you know, if you know what kosher uh, butchering laws are, uh, a huge part of them is making sure all the blood is drained out of an animal's uh, body before it's served up to be eaten. Most of us don't think about this, but a few of us come from cultures where blood pudding or other things like that uh, became common cultural fare. People didn't even think about it. And this is a little bit countercultural for that. Now, maybe you are thinking, oh, I can't stand the idea of drinking blood. But if you came of a current culture where you ate blood pudding, you may think, oh, darn, does that mean I have to quit that? Well, the Apostles' Decree is pretty clear. Blood is sacred, and we're not to step on it. We're not to defile it. We're not to eat it. It's sacred. And out of respect for the life of the animal that gave it, we pour it out before the Lord out of respect for the, for the maker who said from the time Noah got off the boat, you can eat the, meat, the animals now, but don't drink their blood. Uh, the prohibition against meeting, eating the meat of strangled, meeting the eat, eating the meat <laughs> of strangled animals is really about the same thing. The way some idle temples killed their sacrifices was by strangulation, which would have kept the blood inside the body. And so since strangling keeps the blood in it, avoiding the meat of strangled animals is another way of avoiding eating the blood. What about the prohibition against sexual immorality? It's for the church universal of all time and place. The Greek word here for sexual immorality is again that word pornea, if you look in the Greek. It's where we get our words for fornication and pornography. It means fornication and includes sex outside of marriage and any of the other forbidden sexual relations described in Leviticus 18, including adultery, sex with a close relative, with animals, or with another person of the same sex, homosexual practice. All these are forbidden for the people of God, including any Gentiles who wish to be followers of Jesus. They're forbidden in the law, but they're also forbidden in the new covenant. Why? Why, you ask? Well, there's always a positive reason when God gives a negative command. When God says, don't steal, he's really saying respect each other positively. Sexual immorality represents a kind of theft. 
stealing from someone else who would eventually belong to another person, an intimacy that was really only given to be between husband and wife. A gift. So sex itself is a gift, sexual relations, intimate relations, a gift that God gives husband and wife, part of the glue that holds them together, part of the joy of oneness to be one flesh is a gift of husband and wife, but also out of which the power of procreation comes. The potential to have new life in a married home where a child will be born and have both a mother and a father. Because that's what you get when you get monogamous heterosexual marriage. You get the potential for the next generation. And God intends marital relations be, to be a gift given to husband and wife who in that one flesh union will continue God's command to fill the earth with their offspring. Now what happens when people take that gift and use it outside the bounds where it was meant to be uh, exercised is destruction. If you read the Proverbs, there's almost four chapters of Proverbs in the whole 31 chapters that are devoted to the question of adultery and sexual immorality, warning young men and women to be pure in this area, not to give away their power energy to someone who has not been given to them, to save their, the delight of their union for marriage. Listen to how it says it in Proverbs chapter 5. Because this gives you a positive picture of the gift. And what happens when the gift goes outside its bounds. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Pay attention to my words, that you may maintain discretion, and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's as bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she doesn't know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Don't turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Don't go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life, you'll groan while your flesh and body are spent. And you'll say, how I hated discipline. How my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Drink water. Now, this is the, the advice from the, the wise son of David. Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. Water here is a metaphor for intimate marital relations. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, Got to take a drink here. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sin hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. 
Now, that's just one of many chapters that name this problem to warn God's people, his sons and daughters, to live by his ways, not by the ways of the world. God intends intimate relations to be a gift for husband and wife where the two become one flesh and have all the blessings of God in that union. Jesus talks a lot about the gift of marriage. And he, he lifts it up as something of God's design from the beginning of creation. God made them male and female, and for this cause, the cause of marriage, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's timeless, universal. God's will for the whole human race. And anything that assaults that relationship or steals from that relationship and gives it to someone else to whom you do not belong or does not belong to you is theft, defilement, and a sin against the Creator. Jesus warns against sexual immorality in the Gospels, calling it an evil desire coming out of the heart. You know, one of these uh, excuses that I heard for why people should be able to sleep together before they get married is that they say, oh, you should have to try each other out before you get into the long-term commitment commitment of marriage to see if you're compatible. But I want you to think carefully about what that really says. It's, uh, the, the analogy I've heard is that uh, it's like borrowing somebody else's toothbrush and saying, oh, you know what, I, it's okay that you use that toothbrush, I'm going to use it too. But I think it's deeper than that. I think it's more like taking a drink of water that doesn't belong to you, drinking it, throwing it up, and giving it to the person it does belong to. That's what sex outside of marriage is when a person has not been given to you. It's taking that spring of power for intimacy that God gave for the gift of marriage, giving it to somebody else, and then expecting there to be no consequence before God. But there are consequences. In his letters to seven churches of Revelation, Christ warns, warns the churches of Pergamon and Thyatira in very stern language, that unless they repent of idolatry and sexual immorality, he would come and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. Remember that prophetess Jezebel who was teaching God's servants to commit sexual immorality in Thyatira. Jesus said, unless you repent, I've given you time to repent, you wouldn't, so I'm going to come and cast you on a bed of suffering. And I'll make you suffer intensely and I will kill your children and I will kill those who are sleeping with you, basically. Or you're teaching to be immoral. Very stern warning. Do you want the Lord Jesus fighting against you with the sword of his mouth? That's not, not a pretty picture, right? Paul warns the believers in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. As a Christian, you're not your own anymore. You've said, I don't want to belong to the world, the flesh, and the devil anymore. I now belong to God. And because you belong to God, your body is holy and sacred to Him. And what you do with your body makes a difference. You were bought at a price, so honor God with your bodies. 
Paul warns against sexual morality in 1 Thessalonians 4 with these words. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to back up for a minute and tell you again why it is so such a serious, horrific sin that the churches of Jesus Christ in the United States and the Western Hemisphere have compromised on this teaching and have begun to teach their people that it's okay to commit certain sexual immorality boundary crossings. And you know that that's happened in our United Methodist denomination, that we have bishops who are practicing sexual immorality and other bishops who are protecting that and advocating for it. They are false teachers. They are lying about God and they are calling people to live in unholiness and defiance of the living God and his word. Do you think that they will escape judgment? They will not. God will punish all those just as the scripture said, who commit such sins and teach others to do so. Involvement. Now, I, I got I, I to gotta just back up here a minute. Not even back up. It's what's next. Involvement in sexuality is immorality is not the unforgivable sin. We got to hear this loud and clear. Jesus responds to the woman at the well. The woman caught in adultery shows that he is grace. People who are hungry for love and intimacy, and sometimes as a starving man will steal bread from a store, they will try to steal that intimacy because they think they can't wait until they get to the altar and make the promises before God, that they've got to have it now. And they do that, and then they bring into their lives the soaking power of evil lust, and it doesn't go away, and they can't get free of it, and they come to hate it. Jesus knows the destructive consequences of sin, and he took them on himself on the cross so we could be set free from them. So people who are slaves to things they couldn't get free of, just as Proverbs 5 describes, could have someone who would set them free. Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to sin, but the son will set you free. It's not the unforgivable sin. In our cultural context, there's so much pornea all around, and people are in need of grace and forgiveness. They're in need of understanding why God says no in the first place. Why would God say wait? Wait until you get to the altar. Wait until someone commits to stay by your side for the rest of your life. Wait to give yourself away because you are so precious and valuable as his eternal child, that your body is holy. And he will give you to your spouse in due time as a delightful and wonderful gift. Wait. Preserve yourself chaste and pure until that day. And even on that day, you'll be chaste and pure. And God will give you permission to be one flesh. Now, within that, I answered the rhetorical why. It's a very precious gift. 
But think about that metaphor of water in Proverbs 5. You know, water within its bounds is life. we got to have water to live. But what happens when water goes outside its bounds? When a tsunami hits a shore and crosses the, the boundary of the beach, it's not supposed to cross. When a river floods over its banks and it's going into your basement and washing things away and drowning people because they're trapped inside their door. That's what sexual love does when it goes out of its bounds. It's a fire that burns the soul down. Now, what does this call for? It calls moral compromise from these sins is serious and can be spiritually deadly, but it calls for repentance. That's what it calls for. Maybe even deep mourning to look back at a life of rebellion where you said, no, nah, I'm spurning the discipline of the Lord. I'm not going to do things His way. I'm going to do them my own. And then after paying the consequences of the pain of that, to look back and say, I'm sorry, Lord. Please forgive me. I repent. It calls for repentance and deep mourning and for the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit to set free and heal from its consequences. Got to go back to the cross one more time. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners, proving God's love for us. This is not the unforgivable sin. It is a sin. And that's why Paul warns believers, flee from it. Don't get involved in that. People who commit those things and don't repent, they're not going to be in the kingdom of heaven. But God has called you to something more. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to say to God, I'm sorry I renounced that sin. I don't want it in my life anymore. Save me. Set me free. You know, I think this is, uh, you know, who wants to preach on this? How many of our late preachers volunteer to preach on this? <laughs> you know, they tell me sometimes, like when we have our, our uh, late preacher support breakfast, Pastor, we're not going to talk about that stuff. You have to do that. And, uh, and, and I get it. These are difficult things to, to talk about. But when the church doesn't talk about them, the way people get taught is by what the world has to say about it. Uh, or what heretical... False Christian teachers have to say about it, who ignore the word of God and turn it into a license for immorality. Jude, the Lord's brother, had some very stern warnings to say about this very matter in his letter. He was probably there at that council meeting in Acts 15. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as our own sovereign and Lord. You know, it's not an accident that the same bishops and church leaders who are teaching that it's okay to commit sexual immorality are also spitting on the lordship of Jesus Christ. That they're saying he's not really divine, he's flawed and human, and we don't need to talk about his sacrifice anymore. False teaching, it's a different gospel, it's not Christian anymore. And we as God's people are called to discern that and flee from them. You know, they, these are... Uh, 
Things that we've got to talk about and we've got to teach our children. God's positive will for human intimacy so that you as a young person know the path to follow to get to the greatest joy in a relationship with your spouse that'll be something you commit to to be in for life and where it will be safe to be one with each other. Because this person you've given yourself to, body, soul, and spirit, is not going to leave you. And out of that bond comes the joy of the potential for the next generation. Right? God's positive will. Know that that's why it's worth saving yourself to get to that place. That place of safety and God-blessed intimacy. But flee from the opportunities and temptations to steal it before it's given to you. To recognize that for what it is. Theft and a teaching of demons. You know, it's not an, uh, an accident that they link these four things together that really had to do with idol worship. The idol, uh, the deities of the pagan nations were famous for teaching their followers that it was okay to commit sexual immorality. That that was actually part of worshiping those gods. Think of the fertility gods of the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians. You know, this is how you kept the cycle of nature going. You went to the temple. You got together with a prostitute. You defied all kinds of boundaries. And all you're thinking, wow, this is worship. Wow. You know, it's the idols, it's the doctrine of demons to defile ourselves in those ways. And we've got to teach our children these things so they know and understand the will of God in these matters and fleeing from idolatry and abstaining from blood and that God intends intimate relations for to be a gift for husband and wife. So they will have the potential to bring children in the world and those children will have a committed mother and father who are there to help them grow up safe and sound. That violating those bounds is serious sin, but not unforgivable. That people can repent and be set free. All of those sins I just named. And find cleansing and new life. God will punish all those who wrong a brother or sister in this matter. Or take advantage of them, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. Because God has called us to live a holy life. But Jesus has died to set us free. We can repent. We can hear the good news that Jesus said to that woman caught in adultery. Where are your, your accusers? Is there no one to condemn you? I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. We can make the decision to turn away from that way of the world and turn back to Jesus to say, I'm done hating your discipline. I repent. This piece of the law is timeless. Now, we don't get saved just because we keep it. It's because we trust in Jesus and we're saved that we begin to want to keep these parts of the law and to understand why they were given for God's people of all time, all place, all nation, all tribes, all cultures, not just the Jewish people, but anyone who calls himself a Christian and trusts in Jesus. Now, I hope this is helpful, but parents, you've got to teach your children this stuff. You've got to talk about it. You might, you, you might have an example in your own life of where you've learned negatively why this is true. And, and, and I, those things are hard to talk about. You, you don't have to tell your children all the details of your past. But you do need to teach them God's way and help them understand God's forgiveness, God's call to repentance. And we need to share this with the world. Now listen, you and I know that the world doesn't want to hear this message right now. It wants unrestrained freedom. 
It, wants, it doesn't even want to face the consequences of that unrestrained freedom. It's still arguing about how some people can get rid of a baby they don't want. Right? That argument wasn't solved because the Supreme Court issued a ruling in June. You know, you still see the heart and attitude of people in our culture, many of whom want to throw off that yoke, don't want to have any restraint on how they, they use their bodies and behave. That is not given to us as Christians. We're called to be different from the world, to live a life of holiness and love. And in that come the gifts, the good, the good gifts, including the good gift of marriage. God said, whoever finds, speaking to men, whoever finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Men who are married, can I hear an amen? amen. All right, I think that's probably a good place to quit. <laughs> right? Quit while I'm ahead. Quit on a positive note. Women can you, who are married, can you say amen to that? Amen. All right, good, thank you. Uh, I, again, I want to return to the grace of God. All this, it calls for humble repentance. It may call for that. It may call for mourning over one's sins. That, that's biblical. Blessed is the one who humbles himself before the Lord. They receive grace. To admit, I messed up, I threw off discipline, I disobeyed, I crossed the line, I stole I cheated, I lied, whatever it was, and I'm sorry. I repent of that. Please forgive me, Lord. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. You paid for that sin. So I could be set free from that curse of its consequences. You took it on yourself on the cross so I could be blessed. Bless me, Lord. And I'm ready to live in your way now. Lead me in it. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Change my will, my mind. Set me free from my evil desires. You know, if that's the earnest prayer of your heart, Jesus is totally going to fill you with his grace and respond with forgiveness, right? And if you didn't like what I had to say, like, don't tell me I can't do that. Well, that's evil. See it for what it is. It really is. You know, you got to look at your own heart. Why would you love an evil desire? What's really going on there? How is it that you're in rebellion against what God really wants? Search it out. Talk about it with him. Say, Lord, here's my heart. Let's talk about it. And here's what God says. Come, let's reason together. And though your sins be like scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. I'll wash them clean, and I won't remember them at all. They'll be as far as the east is from the west. You know, all right, come to the Lord with all that's in your heart and give it to him. And let him make you purified and what he wants you to be. And then there's rest then there's peace that lasts. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Igniting Your Faith. Let God's Word empower your life with new growth that encourages everyone you meet. Igniting Your Faith is copyrighted and published by Dr. Chris Fisher and First Church, Schuylkillhaven, Pennsylvania. Special piano music played by Cindy McClelland. You can find more information about Dr. Chris Fisher, this podcast, and the church at our website, havenfirstumc.org. We hope you will join us again next week and let God ignite your faith.